Uh, we are going to look at a passage from the Gospel of John. We've been in John since, uh, since Christmas. We'll be in John through Easter, and we are now in a series of, of Jesus' I Am statements, the statements that Jesus makes when he is declaring himself to be not just the Messiah, but actually the creator of heaven and earth. And we're in John chapter 8. I'm going to read to us a pretty good chunk of scripture this morning. So uh, sit back and listen. I'll be reading John chapter 8, verses 31 through the end of the chapter, verse 59. It'll be on the screen. You can follow ahead or follow along over my head, or you can follow along in your own Bible. Listen now to God's word. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? Is it because you cannot bear to hear my word? You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you don't hear them is that you are not of God. And the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And the Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it, and he was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. 
So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out to the, of the temple. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful that you have brought us here this morning. And so, Lord, we ask you to do what you love to do, to go to work by the power of your word and the power of your spirit to pierce our hearts, to humble us, to loosen our grip on the things that we often cling to so that we might tighten it on you. Lord, show us Jesus more clearly today that we might see him and know him and love him. I pray all of this in his name. Amen. Some of you uh, know that when I was in college, um, I played a lot of basketball. That's really an understatement. Um, I played basketball, and on the side, I went to college. Um, you would think, with the amount of basketball I played, that I would be getting paid to play basketball, but that's not the case. I just was a mediocre basketball player who played a lot of mediocre basketball. And uh, the gyms at the University of Texas where I started are, are really like any gyms, I think, all over the world. When people get together to play any sport, and especially basketball, there's always kind of a hierarchy of where the games are played. And especially at really big complexes like UT, they had like eight basketball courts. Well, there was always like some courts that you knew that's just kind of where the lesser players played, and some courts where it was always a place where the better players played. And so there's these two courts in the middle on one side of the gym that everybody knew that's where the best games are. And back in the day, I was decent enough to be able to kind of hang in on those courts in some of those games. And I thought I was pretty special, right? Because I was like, hey, I'm at the center court, kind of a big deal here. Uh, you know, I'm not going to go play in those lesser courts, of course. And so I felt pretty special about myself until they would come in. And they would be the University of Texas football players in the offseason. They wanted to come in and play basketball with everybody else. And as you can imagine, if you are on scholarship to play Division I college football, you are a fairly good athlete. These were large men who were incredible athletes. I, I literally saw one of the defensive tackles, a man who weighed 320 pounds, take another guy out kind of on the elbow, jab step, drive around him, and dunk on another guy. 320-pound man just went up and dunked it like it was nothing. And so, of course, when I'm on the court with those guys, I'm not feeling quite so special. But then, sometimes, the other they would come in. And it was actually not the varsity football players, but the varsity basketball players. So these are guys who are also Division I athletes, but they're Division I athletes playing basketball. And they'd get on the court with the football players, and they would usually blow the football players off the court. And of course, at this point, you know, the rest of us, you know, just kind of regular people are just standing back, mesmerized, watching all that's going on. And it was so fun to watch these guys who were such good players and to see their greatness just kind of on display. Until the ultimate they would come in, and it was the former basketball players, many of whom were playing professional basketball. And these guys, who were making their living playing basketball, would come out and they would make the current varsity players look silly. 
And at that point, when you're kind of like me, just sitting back against the wall watching, it's, an ama- it's amazing the kind of separation to think, wow, here's me. I can barely hang with these guys. These next guys blow me off the court. They get blown away by these guys, and then those guys get blown away by the guys that are playing in the NBA who, by the way, are the 1% of college players who go to the NBA, and then they get used by the LeBron Jameses of the world. And you think, how amazing is the gulf between me and somebody like that? Greatness was truly on display, and really the only thing to do was just sit back and watch it. That's kind of what's happening in this passage. There is greatness on display, except that the people who are watching it just don't know that it's there. They still see themselves as being able to hang on that court. But what Jesus is saying very clearly to them and to us is that he is so much greater than anything in our lives. In fact, in verse 53, if you remember, is really the heart of this passage The Pharisees finally just all kind of frothed up and angry. They're ready to pounce on Jesus, and they say, Are you greater than our father Abraham? It's a good question for us to wrestle with this morning. Is Jesus greater? Is Jesus greater than the things that we typically think are great in our lives? Is Jesus greater than the things that we oftentimes idolize? Is Jesus greater than the things that we hold so dearly in our lives? Well, we're going to look at three things this morning that uh, I think we share in common with these first century Jews, things that they tended to hold on to as being greater than Jesus, and I think we're tempted to the same thing. And here they are, freedom, family, and life, okay? Let's look at that first one, freedom. How are we tempted to think that our freedom is greater than Jesus. Well, if you remember here early in that passage, verse 32, Jesus says, you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And of course, the response to that was, Jesus, what are you talking about? We are free. We've never been slaves to anyone, is what the Pharisees say, which is a little ironic, because they are living currently under Roman rule, And before that, they were living under Greek rule. And before that, they were living under Persian rule. And before that, they were living under Babylonian rule. They have been not free for a long, long time. But boy, isn't it just kind of that insidious lie that we get to tell ourselves, yeah, I'm totally free. I get to do whatever I want, right? And we are Americans. We're Texans even. We love the concept of freedom. We live for it. Independence is one of the things that we celebrate. I would say that in the city of New Braunfels, independence is probably one of our primary idols. And by that, I mean the thing that we value probably above anything else as citizens of Texas and America and even of New Braunfels is that we are independent people. And it's helpful, I think, to ask ourselves those questions What is it that we think is going to set us free? If we value independence so greatly, what are the things that we think are going to give us that independence? You know, this passage actually, that phrase, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, it's actually engraved on the the tower at the University of Texas, the main building. It's, It's written on the top of it. But they're not talking about Jesus. 
They're talking about education. It's one of the things that we oftentimes talk about. If you really want uh, more upward mobility in life, if you really want true freedom, education, that's the key. Or maybe for you it's financial freedom. Maybe that's the thing you hold the most, most dear. And you've put that at the center of your life and everything revolves around that. You're willing to sacrifice everything else in your life in order to have that financial freedom so that you're not constrained financially. Or maybe uh, it's vocational freedom, to do everything in your work so that nobody ever has to tell you what to do anymore, so that you can be in complete control, so that you can be the one who's ordering everybody around. It's that vocational freedom of I get to do whatever I want. Maybe it's relational freedom. We use words sometimes like uh, talking about our spouses like our old ball and chain, like we are tied down. Like the way to find real freedom in life is to actually get away from those kind of constraints. We're freedom-loving people, aren't we? We love freedom, and we are so oftentimes looking for freedom in so many different ways. There's wonderful truth uh, in the deeply theological movie, The Lion King. Uh, I don't know if you remember this, 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 uh, this one scene where Scar, he's the villain, Okay, he's the brother, actually, of the true king. He's the villain, and he is actually plotting now to take down the king. And he's got this little, uh, this little group of hyenas that are kind of his henchmen. And he's talking to the hyenas, and this is what he says. This is, uh, he says, um, the hyena says, yeah, be prepared. We'll be prepared. But for what, Scar? And Scar says, for the death of the king. The hyena says, what? Is he sick? He says, no, fool. We're going to kill him. And Simba, too. And then the hyena says, oh, great idea. Who needs a king? And then all of the hyenas start going, no king, no king, no king. They're so excited about it. And Scar says, you idiots, there will be a king. I will be king. See, the truth is that when we try to run away from the king, when we try to run away from the constraints that Jesus has lovingly given us, we run straight into the arms of other kings, don't we? When we are seeking freedom as our primary goal, we are actually going to be enslaved by our search for freedom. If you put financial freedom, as good as that is, if you put it at the center of your life and you revolve everything else around it, guess what? You will be enslaved to your finances. You will not be free from them. If you put vocational freedom, as good and right as that can be, at the center of your life, guess what? You will not be free you will actually be enslaved by your vocation. We are meant to find freedom, but we are meant to find freedom in Jesus and in him alone. When he says you will know the truth and the truth will set you free, the truth is him. Jesus says when you know me and you put me at the center of your life, then and only then will you actually be free to be who I have made you to be. I love the way that this one commentator says this. He says, true freedom is not the liberty to do what we please, but the liberty to do what we ought. And it is genuine liberty because what we ought now pleases us. Let me read that again. True freedom is not the liberty to do what we please, but the liberty to do what we ought. And it is genuine liberty because what we ought now pleases us. See, when Jesus sets our hearts free, we're free to 
to be the people he has made us to be, to be conformed into his image, to be members and subjects of his kingdom, to be his disciples, to be freed, to be the people we were created to be, to be truly human. And when we know the love and grace of Jesus that has set us free, that's the freedom we desire. So there's the first thing. Jesus is greater than our freedom. Here's the second thing that I think those Pharisees were wrestling with that maybe we wrestle with sometimes as well, which is Jesus is greater than your family. Now look at verse 41 one more time. Jesus says, you are doing the works that your father did. He's talking to the Pharisees there, and they respond, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Now, what's going on there is that they are actually responding to him with something that's got a little something else kind of hidden underneath. We were not born out of sexual immorality. The implication is, but maybe you were. I mean, we've all heard the stories, Jesus. Your mom just got pregnant by the Holy Spirit. We're not buying that one. We know who you are. We know where you grew up. We've heard the stories. We've got a father, and we know who our father is. How about you, Jesus? The thing is, the Pharisees were clinging to their family name with incredible veracity. Maybe it was their actual family name, but more so, it was the identity that belonged to being a Jew. Because of of utmost importance, higher than anything else, of greatest importance of their lives was being able to be identified as being a child of Abraham, being a part of God's chosen people. And to have that name on them was so important to them that they were willing to do anything in the world other than not be identified as a child of Abraham. Now, I do think it's helpful for us to pause here a second and just think, how do we struggle with seeing our family as greater than Jesus? Family, of course, is a very wonderful thing. Family is celebrated in the Bible. You should celebrate family as well. But if we put family at the center of our lives, we will actually become a slave to our family too. Maybe this shows up for you in always kind of running in the back of your head that question, what would my mom or dad think about this? I'm about to do something. And not only am I wondering what they might think, but I'm so locked up about it that I can't even move. Because the thought that my dad or my mom would be disappointed in my decisions is so overwhelming to me that I can't move forward. That my family name is of such great importance to me that I actually have no individual identity anymore. Maybe that's what some of us struggle with. Or maybe it's just the opposite. Maybe what's running kind of in the back of your head is this idea that I'll never be that kind of parent. I'll never be like my dad was. I'll never treat my children the way that my mom treated me. I'll never do those things that they did. I'm going to be somebody different. And the entirety of your life is actually lived trying to be exactly the opposite of your family name and trying to run from it. Or maybe you're living just with the shame of your own family name and with the fear that you have somehow sullied that name for generations to come, for your children, that your decisions 
that uh, your relational activity, that your sins are never going to be let down, and that your family is going to be broken forever. Friends, what Jesus is saying to those Pharisees and what he is saying to us today is that the only family name that really matters is the one that he gives us. We have, a, um, we have actually a, a lot of adoption in our, in our family. Uh, Joy and I do not have adopted children, but, but our, our brothers and sisters do. And, and I love this, this one time one of, uh, when Joy's brother and his wife had adopted a child. They had the coolest thing. They had a naming ceremony for this child. And uh, as soon as the, the legal documents were all signed, and as soon as they got out of court, they actually came to the house, and they had this party, and it was a naming ceremony for this new child. And they got to proclaim, you are no longer this name. You are now our name. Your name has changed. Your identity has changed. And you are no longer marked by that family. You're marked by our family. You know, when we, when we baptize... That's what we're doing. We are marking someone with the name of Jesus. It's a naming ceremony where we get to say, yeah, you're born into a great family. We're excited about that. But what we're really excited about is that you have been born into Jesus' family. It is the glorious truth that is proclaimed here and throughout the rest of the New Testament that God adopts people into his family. It's one of the most incredible theological doctrines that we have as a church, that we were outsiders belonging to the slave family, and that God, through Christ, has adopted us into his family, and he's given us his name, and we get an inheritance with the family, and we are insiders no matter what, and we are no longer orphans, and we are no longer slaves. We are children, Paul says in Galatians, and we have been given the full rights of children, Friends, if that's not the doctrine that lights your heart on fire, then let me invite you to know it more today. You are God's child because of what Jesus has done for you. Your name has been changed. It's been give, you've been given a new name. Live into that name because Jesus is greater than your earthly family. All right, here's the last thing. is that Jesus is proclaiming himself to be greater than even than life and death itself. As amazing as that sounds, Jesus is proclaiming himself to be greater than death itself. Look at verse 59 one more time. Toward the end here. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. What a strange way to end our passage. All of the people that Jesus has been talking to, many of whom we read actually in the previous chapter, believed in him are now picking up stones to stone him, to throw at him because they want to kill him. Why on earth would they want to be doing that? What has Jesus said that would make people want to kill him now? Well, he said something kind of subtle. You know those uh, optical illusions, you know, that you, the, the pictures where uh, you look at it and you're like, oh, it's a young lady. And they're like, oh, no, look a little closer. Oh, it's an old woman. You know that one, right? Or the one that's like, oh, it's a vase. Oh, no, it's two people kissing, right? And it's this weird optical illusion where there's two things going on at once. Same thing is happening here. Jesus has said something that on the surface sounds odd and a little offensive, but really below the surface is ridiculous, and it makes people want to kill him. He has said, before Abraham was, I am. 
Now, what a weird way to say it. <laughs> what, weird, what weird just kind of verbiage and grammar, right? They say, how do you know Abraham? Abraham didn't see you. You're not even 50 years old. How could you have seen Abraham? And he says, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus doesn't say before Abraham was, I was. Jesus doesn't say before Abraham was, you know, I kind of like, I've heard about before Abraham. I read about it. I studied. Jesus says before Abraham was, I am. So on the surface, he's claiming something crazy, right? Which is eternal existence. He is claiming to have at least been extremely old so that he actually knew Abraham before Abraham was born. But below the surface, he's claiming something even deeper. We've said this just about every week now, but remember back in Exodus chapter 3 when God reveals himself to Moses and he says, Moses, I want you to tell the people that I'm going to rescue them out of Egypt. And Moses says, I don't even know who you are. What's your name? Who should I say sent me? And God says, I am. Tell them, I am sent you. And what Jesus does all throughout John here is he claims that name for himself. And he says, I am not simply really old. I am not simply even pre-existing. But I am the one and true sovereign creator of all things. I am God himself. Become a man and standing in front of you. Now, C.S. Lewis said, uh, there's only a couple of things that you can do with Jesus. <laughs> Meh is really not an option, <laughs> right? Either Jesus is, is a liar, or he's a total lunatic, or he is who he says he is. The Pharisees take one of those routes. They think he's a liar and a blasphemer. But we know different. Jesus is who he says he is. And he is the Lord even of life itself. This is a helpful reminder to us as we begin the season of Lent. Again, a season where we get to slow down, where we get to maybe recount in ways that we don't typically do our own finitude, our finiteness, our own weakness, our frailty, the fact that we all will die. And in doing so, it points us to the one in whom there is real and true life. I want to read you something that a friend of mine sent to me. It's a friend in Austin. Goes to an Anglican church there, and one of the spiritual directors at that church, a woman named Terry Fisher, had written this and sent it out to the church. And um, it's so good. Listen to what she says about Lent here. It was on last this Wednesday, Ash Wednesday. It is Ash Wednesday. Normally, I would be at Christchurch. I might be dipping my thumb into a small dish of ashes, applying them in perpendicular lines to form an oily smudge in the shape of a cross. It's one of my cherished moments in the church's calendar. The ashen cross is to remind us of our finiteness, our mortality, our fragile humanity. We are humbled as we receive the mark. This year, the ashes have been applied in the form of ice. Ice on our roads, further limiting our connection. Ice in our pipes. Ice hanging from our roofs. Ice jamming our pumps for water and for gas. Lent is always a reminder of the mercy of God. This year in Texas, it is a severe mercy. An icy reminder that we control almost nothing. That we are dependent on one another 
and on God's love to bear the weight of life and of being human. Friend, Lent is supposed to remind us of our finite humanity, but more than that, it's supposed to point us to the one in whom there is life. It's supposed to point us toward Easter, where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus and we celebrate the new life that we have been given in him. So let me just ask, how do we respond to the great I am this morning? Well, Jesus says over and over through John, follow me. That's an easy one to say and a hard one to do. Because following Jesus will mean that we put things aside. It will mean that we go through trials. It will mean that we embrace our limits. It will mean that we will have to displace and put aside those other things that we so highly value. But let me say that we can do it because our Savior has put them aside for us. It's Jesus who put aside the ultimate freedom to come and take on the limits of humanity to be one of us. It's Jesus who put aside his rightful family place on his throne in heaven and came to take on the form of a servant and to be humbled even to the point of death on a cross. It's Jesus who put aside his own life so that he might die for ours, so that we might have life and that we might know it eternally. That is the Savior that we have, friends. That's the one who calls us to follow him today. Let's pray that he enables us to do that even now. Father, we're so thankful that you have given us this wonderful gift. Let us not take it for granted. Jesus, we're grateful for your life and your death. We're grateful for your resurrection. We're grateful for your love and your grace. Holy Spirit, We are grateful that you move and work in our hearts. We ask that you would go about the business of tenderizing them even now. That we might feel our need more deeply. That we might fall on our knees and turn to Jesus and embrace him in his love and grace. And that we might follow. We pray this all in his name. Amen.